One of the things that stops small business owners from creating marketing content consistently is this feeling of being uninspired, of having no idea what to say in the first place. If you can relate to this, you are in good company. So many of us struggle with knowing what our marketing content should actually be about. But I am here to help. I have come up with 100 prompts that you can use to guide your marketing from your social media posts to your emails to your longer form content. I guarantee that these prompts will get you inspired and that you'll have more ideas than you even know what to do with. You can download this list of 100 marketing prompts for free at makinggoodpodcast.com slash 100 prompts. That's makinggoodpodcast.com slash 100-P-R-O-M-P-T-S. Welcome back to Making Good, the podcast for small businesses who want to make a big impact. I'm your host, Lauren Tilden, and this is episode 189. I've noticed something about this podcast and specifically about you, dear listener, and that is this. You tend to be something like me and things that I've struggled with so, so often, they are the things that you struggle with too. Things like self-doubt, perfectionism, consistency, and as we're talking about today, procrastination. The more I reflect on the topic of procrastination and its role in my own life, which spoiler alert has been huge, the more I realize that it's such an important topic to cover. If I think about all the things that I've procrastinated on over the years and for the amount of time that I've wasted procrastinating, well, I can really get into my feelings about that. Forgive me for getting a little intense for a minute, but life is just too short not to do the things we want to do, which is what we're doing when we procrastinate. Here's a very incomplete list of things that I've procrastinated on or still procrastinate on. Dealing with mail, making doctors and dentist appointments, projects for work, even the ones I'm excited about, writing marketing emails, which is my favorite thing, creating content for social media, grocery shopping, doing laundry, and much, much more. I procrastinate on things both large and small, things that don't seem to matter, as well as things that are very important to me when it comes to living a healthy, happy, productive life. Procrastination is something that I've been working on for the last several years, and I'm going to be honest, it's still a struggle, but I've made a ton of progress and I've learned a bunch of things that have been nothing short of life-changing for me. So today we're going to talk all about procrastination, a little about what it is and the surprising place it comes from why it's such an important topic for small business owners in particular, and most importantly, my best tips for getting out of your own way and putting a stop to procrastination. If you're like I have been, a long-time frequent procrastinator, or just a sometimes occasional procrastinator, you might find yourself wondering things like, why can't I just do it? Why do I always do this? What's wrong with me? Well, it turns out there's a reason that we procrastinate, and it's not because we're bad, lazy, or careless. There's more than a little bit more to it. Before we move on to the rest of the episode, which I am so excited about, I have a favor to ask you. I really believe in the topic of today's episode, and I would love your help spreading the word as far as possible. Would you take a screenshot in your podcast player and share it on your Instagram stories with a link to this episode? This episode's link is makinggoodpodcast.com slash 189. And you can also tag me at Lauren Tilden. I would be so, so, so grateful, and I'd love to chat with you. Also, stay tuned to the end of the episode for the Small Biz Spotlight, where I'm going to be introducing you to a small business owner that I think you will love. So first up, what is procrastination? Well, according to Wikipedia, procrastination is the act of unnecessarily and voluntarily delaying or postponing something despite knowing that there will be negative consequences for doing so. 
In a New York Times article by Charlotte Lieberman, which I will link to in the show notes, Dr. Piers Steele, professor of motivational psychology at the University of Calgary, is quoted describing procrastination as self-harm. In other words, when we procrastinate, we are actively going against our best interest. It's irrational in that sense. As covered in that same New York Times article, which is entitled, Why You Procrastinate? It Has Nothing to Do with Self-Control. The truth is that experts know the reason we procrastinate. And again, it's not because we're lazy or we have some kind of moral failing. We procrastinate to avoid negative feelings. When we procrastinate, we're doing it to avoid a negative emotion or mood surrounding a task. Emotions and feelings like dread, anxiety, self-doubt, guilt. The author of that article, Charlotte Lieberman, writes, Procrastination is an emotion regulation problem, not a time management problem. We procrastinate because we would rather not experience that emotion or feeling that's going to come with doing the task, so we just put it off and allow our future self to deal with it. Here are some examples from my own life of things that I procrastinated on, with a little bit of digging into the negative emotion that I was trying to avoid. I procrastinated on launching my membership program because I was afraid that no one would want to join. I procrastinated on writing marketing emails because marketing is my thing and I want them to be perfect. I've procrastinated on pitching my podcast for sponsorships because I'm nervous about being rejected. I procrastinated on reaching out to people that I love and care about because I feel guilty that I've let too much time go by. I've procrastinated on going to the doctor because going to the doctor makes me anxious about being weighed or receiving bad news. I could go on and on, but here's the point. For anything that I've procrastinated on, if I'm willing to dig into it and ask myself what I'm feeling and trying to avoid, there's always something there. For me personally, procrastination often comes hand in hand with perfectionism. I want to do things perfectly. I'm literally afraid of not doing them perfectly. So I will procrastinate until a time when I feel like I can do them perfectly, which spoiler alert sometimes never comes. So why is this important, especially for small business owners? Well, I think that procrastination is a topic that's especially important for us because usually when we first start out, it's just us. There's no boss, there are no coworkers to help keep us on track. We're just out here working on our own projects, motivated by ourselves. I believe many of us are stifling our own growth and we're stressing ourselves out, in large part unnecessarily, because we procrastinate on things we know matter and that are genuinely important to us and we know will move us toward our goals. If you've listened to this podcast a bit, you know that I believe that small business owners like you and me can change the world, genuinely. Through so many different ways, small business owners do change the world every day. But when we're not taking action, when we're procrastinating, we're limiting our business's ability to grow and to make the kind of impact we want to make. So this is a really important conversation. Given all of this, how do we actually stop procrastinating? Well, I have some ideas for you, which I'll share. But first, I want to acknowledge that sometimes there's just more going on. For example, things like mental illness and insomnia can make us much more likely to procrastinate. If that resonates, please give yourself a big dose of compassion and understanding. I have been there, recently even. Productivity is not more important than your own well-being, so I really want to encourage you to take care of yourself first. That said, given what we now know about procrastination and why we do it, remember, it's about emotion, I've got a few practical suggestions on how we can stop procrastinating. These are things that I've tried and that work for me. So number one, start with compassion. Rather than getting in your head about it or opening the floodgates of negative self-talk, what if you took a more compassionate approach? Remind yourself that procrastination isn't a character flaw or a sign of being lazy or bad or wrong. It's just a way of coping with emotions. 
Number two, get curious. When you find yourself in the moment of procrastinating on something, try to gently ask yourself, what might you be avoiding? What feelings are coming up for you? Ask yourself if you could sit with those feelings, but take action anyway. This has been a really amazing breakthrough for me, learning that I can feel uncomfortable and I can still do the thing. I don't have to wait until I feel ready. Tip number three, make it harder to procrastinate. So one of my favorite books about habits is Atomic Habits by James Clear. And one of James Clear's principles for breaking a bad habit is to just make it more difficult to do that thing. If there's something that you consistently find yourself procrastinating on, how could you make it more difficult for you to procrastinate? Maybe this means blocking your social media on your phone or computer. Maybe this means delegating that task to someone else who can do it for you. What can you do to make procrastinating more difficult? Tip number four, this is a two-part one, and that is to make it fun and or easy to do the task you want to do. This is another thing I learned from Atomic Habits, and it's all about how to create good habits, and more importantly, how to follow through consistently on them. There are two principles I think are really relevant when it comes to overcoming procrastination. The first is to make it fun, as James Clear calls it, make it attractive. When it comes to the things you avoid doing or that you procrastinate on, what could you do to make those same activities actively fun? For example, if you avoid going over your finances, maybe you make a fun date out of it where you buy yourself dinner and put on your favorite music. This isn't my original idea. Rachel Rogers, the author of We Should All Be Millionaires, calls this weekly date with your money, Money Church. The second part of this tip is to make it easy. This final concept from Atomic Habits is all about the simple reality that we are much more likely to do things that are easy for us to do. So if there's something you want to be doing, but that you're procrastinating on, how could you make it easier to do? This is all about removing friction. I know that when I make it easy for myself to eat healthy, like when there's healthy food ready made in the fridge for me to eat, I am so much more likely to do that. Or if I've been procrastinating on exercising, how could I make it easier to exercise? Maybe it's as simple as setting all of your exercise clothes out the night before, clearing your calendar in the morning, and then choosing to exercise in your house instead of having to take yourself all the way to the gym. Tip number five is to create accountability for yourself. I've talked about accountability and I'll talk about it again because it works. When other people are expecting us to do something, we are so much more likely to do it. If there's something that you want to be doing, but you're not doing it, how about adding some gentle pressure? Create accountability for yourself by telling other people what you're going to do and by what date, and then update them when you've done it. This could be a partner, a friend, a community, even your social media followers. There's no one right way to use accountability. Try this out if it feels good for you. But if accountability feels like extra unproductive stress, feel free to give this one a pass. Accountability is a key part of my membership program, Making Good Happen, for this exact reason. Because it's a lot harder to procrastinate when there are others there cheering you on. Tip number six is to do it together. So another way to involve people in overcoming your procrastination is to do the task together with them. Get an exercise buddy and create a co-working session where you and someone else both work on your bookkeeping. Schedule a couple hours of deep cleaning to do with your partner or your roommate so that you're in it together. Or join Making Good Happen where we've got all kinds of accountability built in just for small business owners. Tip number seven is to break the task up into tiny subtasks. So sometimes we get overwhelmed and we procrastinate on things that just feel really big and overwhelming. They just feel like really big undertakings. But what if instead of trying to tackle the whole project at once, you just tackled a tiny bit of it little by little? One of my best tips for confronting overwhelm is to break the thing that is overwhelming down into the tiniest subtasks that you can. 
literally pull out a pen and paper and just write down everything that needs to happen in order to accomplish that larger task that feels overwhelming. Then prioritize them, put them in order, remove anything that doesn't actually have to happen, and you've got yourself a little project plan. I find that it's a lot less scary to get to work when I have small tasks to start out with. Tip number eight is to put it in your calendar. Okay, so let's try something. Think right now about something that you're procrastinating on. Seriously, I'll wait a second. Okay, got something? Now ask yourself how long you think it would take to get that task done. Then go to your calendar and find that amount of time and block it out. If you need to, break that task up into multiple different work sessions on your calendar on different dates. And when the time comes and you see that task in your calendar, you need to actually go work on that task. If you know yourself well enough to know that you might struggle to actually follow through with that, my suggestion is to go back to a couple of tips before this and build in some accountability. Put it in your calendar and then ask someone to text you or tell them that you're going to send the final version when you're finished. Tip number nine is to use time management strategies. When the time comes to actually get to work, when that calendar appointment comes up, we need to stay in the zone. There are so many time management strategies that we can try out, but here's a couple that I would recommend. First, the Pomodoro technique. This is when you work for a period of time, typically 25 minutes, and then you take a break after a timer goes off. Your break will typically be about five minutes. I like to pair the Pomodoro technique. Again, that's 25 minutes of work followed by five minutes of rest with focus music. So I'll listen to a tool called Focus at Will. You can find that online. And I find myself magically very focused during that 25 minutes of work. And then I take a break and then I repeat. Another strategy I like is simply to eliminate distractions. This is actually huge. Turn notifications off on your phone or move your phone into a different room. Wear headphones to block out noise. You can even put on a social media blocker on your computer if you need to. Whatever it's going to take to keep you in the zone and keep you on task, create those conditions for yourself. Finally, tip number 10 is to lower the bar. And this brings us back to something we've already talked about, and that's the desire to do things perfectly. So often we procrastinate out of perfectionism, out of fear that we won't be able to do the task up to our unrealistically high standards. So there's a simple solution to this. Change your standards, lower the bar, whatever it is you're procrastinating on, change your expectations of yourself. Don't feel like it has to be at a plus quality level. What if you allowed yourself to do B or even C quality work and then just move on? As I wrap up my thoughts here, I want to send you one big virtual hug of compassion and acceptance if you're a procrastinator like me. We're not lazy, bad, or wrong. We are all just doing our best. So how about this? I'll go easier on myself if you'll do the same for yourself. Deal? So fellow procrastinator, was this helpful? If so, I challenge you to give one or more of these strategies a shot and let me know how it went. DM me over on Instagram at Lauren Tilden and let's chat. You can find the show notes from this episode at makinggoodpodcast.com slash 189. And now it is time for this small biz spotlight. This week, I'm chatting with Kat Leah of Stir the Pot Kitchen. Kat teaches cozy, inclusive, and fun cooking classes for kids online. As the parent of a little one and another one literally about to be born, I loved learning not only about what led Kat to start her business, but also about the ways that food education can shape a child's relationship to eating. I know you'll love this fascinating conversation. Pat, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you. I gave a little bit of an intro right before we aired this, but I would love for you to just 
Give us the fuller story. What is your business and what led you to start it? Yeah. So my business is called Stir the Pot Kitchen. And it's just me. Um, I founded it a few years ago in the height of the pandemic when kids were stuck at home with not many COVID safe activities and, you know, kind of driving families up the wall a little bit. And so (laughs) I had always wanted to start um, kids cooking classes. And I thought this would be a perfect chance to try out an idea I had, which was cooking classes over Zoom. So I teach kids cooking classes from my home kitchen and they join from wherever they are and just cook along with me step-by-step live and we make a dish together. It's such a cool, unique business. And I just want to ask like maybe a little more about the roots of it. Like, did you, I, I think you studied something regarding food. Did you expect to be doing this? What were you doing before? Give us the good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I have always, I mean, I'm I'm a big food person. I've always been into food and cooking since I was little. I studied mm-hmm. food academically. So in college and in grad school, I took food studies, which is, you know, now there's so many food related businesses. It seems hard to remember a time when it was kind of like felt like it was one sort of good food movement that people were joining. Um, so I've always been interested in the political and social and cultural side of food as well. And then, you know, like many people, I've also worked a lot of food industry jobs. So I've worked waiting tables and I've been a private chef. I've been a caterer. I've run a farm stand. So a lot of that stuff. Um, so I just, I'm a big food system nerd. I love the food system. And then for many years when I lived in New York, I taught cooking and nutrition classes in New York City public elementary schools. So that was really fun. And that's where I kind of fell in love with working with kids and food. So I would, Mm -hmm. you know, it was a it was a very different vibe from my kind of cozy home kitchen classes. It was like, you know, 30 kids in a room and we would set up at their desks and I would schlep groceries on the subway for like, you know, all the classrooms I was visiting that day. And then we would do a stir fry together or make a salad together and talk about the food. So that was really, really fun, really chaotic and messy. Um, <laughs> and I did, I did love it. And I would love to go back to in-person or in-school classes someday. But I, I always felt that the health messaging in those types of classes were just off to me. Um, we did a lot of ed- education about nutrition and a lot of, you know, so-called health-focused education. So that meant stuff like learning how much sugar was in a Coca-Cola or like how to read the calories on a nutrition label. And, you know, I think it was really well-intentioned. I think people who are trying to empower kids to, you know, quote, make healthy choices are their hearts are in the right place. But for me, and then later on in my, in my academic research, I realized this, this gut feeling I had that something was off um, was, was correct. Kids don't actually respond that well to health-focused food messaging. Um, And a lot of times it can have unintended harmful consequences like making them anxious around food or um, making them obsess over food. It can lead to, um, you know, excessive concern over what's healthy. And a lot of times they don't have control over the food they're eating anyway. So it's sort of a, I think it's a misguided approach to talking to kids about food. So instead, in my classes, I always wanted to have my own program where I could just skip all of those conversations. We don't need to worry about calories. I would argue, you know, most of us talk too much about calories, um, but certainly not with little kids. 
and we can skip all of the messaging that's supposed to lead them to make you know healthy choices and we can just focus on the joy and the pleasure and the you know naturally interesting parts of food and cooking so that's what i really try to do in my in my program i love it so much i think i mean maybe just this is maybe a tiny bit of a rabbit hole but i'd love to go a little bit deeper into because i know this is a big part of your business and something like i've really learned to admire about your business is the way that we talk about food and health like societally is very, very damaging to a lot of people. And it starts when they're kids, like you're saying, like assigning like moral judgments to like good foods and bad foods. And like, you're this kind of person if you eat this kind of food and this kind of person if you in like body sizes and all that kind of stuff. I know you are super thoughtful about how you approach that in your, in your education. And I just, if you have anything more to riff on that, I'd love to hear for anyone who's kind of like, wait, what? It's not a good idea to talk to kids about calories. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. I, you know <laughs> yes, I know. And I, I can really recognize that it feels kind of scary and um, something feels wrong about being like, oh, I don't talk to kids about healthy food. Because a lot of times when I say what I do, like, oh, I teach kids cooking classes, people immediately will say, oh, that's so great that you're teaching kids how to make healthy food. And it's just an immediate leap, right? Which it just sort of seems like a no brainer. Like, of course, we want kids to be healthy. Um, but it, it's so interesting because I think a lot of those, like I said, best intentioned approaches actually cause more harm than good. So there's a couple of reasons I don't use the word healthy in my cooking classes. Um, one of them is that health might mean something really different to different kids, right? So if you're a kid who has um, a medical condition or if you are disabled or if you have extreme aversions to certain foods, then maybe some of the food that people talk about as quote unquote unhealthy is actually the healthiest option for you. Like a packaged convenient snack is something that is safe and easy for you to eat and get your nourishment. Or, you know, maybe if a parent is working multiple jobs and struggling to feed their kids and doesn't have time to plan and cook a bunch of whole foods or doesn't have access to a kitchen, like, fast food drive through is going to be maybe the easiest and also i think the healthiest option for a lot of families which means getting people fed and um taking some of the anxiety and stress around meal planning and food so that's one reason why health, health is just it just means something different for for lots of different people um the other reason i don't like to talk about healthy food to kids is because kids are really Um, concrete thinkers, right? Especially younger kids. They're not um, capable of super nuanced, layered, complex messaging around like food and health. So if we tell them something like sugar is bad, or like, you know, one of the things we were supposed to talk about in this program I used to teach was the link between sugar and diabetes or sugar and cancer, which um, is, you know, that's, that's a really controversial thing nutritionally anyway. But I would say that to kids and then they would go to a birthday party and their friend's mom would offer them a cupcake and they would be like, this is bad, but someone is telling me to have it, but I shouldn't have too much of it. But if I like it, am I bad? Like, it's just confusing when we tell them certain things are junk or bad or unhealthy. And then um, we're presenting to them in a different context. And it's, it's just, it doesn't um, add up a lot of times. So it just can cause unnecessary sort of confusion and anxiety in kids. 
Um, and it can also make them feel guilty for stuff that's really not in their control, right? Like they're not choosing what to make for dinner. They're, they're not, they're not earning money and buying groceries. Like they are kids. They eat what's put in front of them, um, and what they have access to. So I'm, I'm not here to overload them with like lots of messaging about the right and wrong way to eat. Um, and I also just think generally, you know, we need to have a bigger conversation as a, as a society about why are we so obsessed with health being the same as weight and health and weight being the same thing as morality. Like those are three things that are not actually related that we really conflate. So yeah, yeah I have, as you can tell, I, I have a lot of thoughts about this. So I sometimes I love get it. a little like off the rails about it, but basically it's just, it just comes down to, it's not helpful. It can sometimes cause more anxiety than um, anything else. And so I just skip it. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Love it. Love it. For anyone who might want to just like learn a little bit more like they're, and then we'll get into my other questions for you, but they're, this is kind of like new to them. This like everything you were just saying, where is there somewhere you'd send them or do you have any resources you'd direct them to? Oh, yes. There's, I think we're living in a really interesting time because there's so much more conversation happening around this. Like even talking about things like deconstructing the word health or talking about weight stigma, like that stuff. I certainly didn't grow up hearing anything about that. Yeah. Um, So it's cool that we live in a time, you know, it's still quite rampant and, and there's a lot of harmful messaging out there, but it's cool to live in a time where people really are talking about it. Um, for parents, especially one wonderful resource I can recommend is uh, Burnt Toast, which is a podcast by Virginia Soul Smith. And she just put out a book called Fat Talk, which I was reading literally before this conversation. Um, <laughs> and her new book is all about parenting in the age of diet culture and sort of how can we approach these topics with care and with respect for um, the whole child. And so that's, I think she's really warm and approachable and she's a, you know, she was once a science reporter, so she's super thorough and well-researched. Um, yeah. Burnt toast, Virginia soul Smith. She's awesome. Um, another, I mean, there's so many, so many kids, Instagram food accounts that it's kind of like a, a wild world to venture into, but there is a person named Danny Leibowitz who runs an account called Kid Food Explorers. And her approach is very similar to mine. She talks a lot about developmentally appropriate conversations with kids around food. And so her whole thing, which I love, 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 is just exploring food in a sensory and engaging and totally morally neutral way. So you can talk about... Instead of talking about like, Oh, broccoli is healthy and cookies are unhealthy, which can be totally misguided, right? She talks a lot about like, oh, how do we identify like the color, the texture, the smell, the taste, the feel of broccoli when it's roasted versus steamed versus raw? And, you know, how about a cookie? Is that crunchy? Is it sweet? You know, so using these sensory um, sort of like explorations of food is very much my jam. And I, and I love her approach too. But if anyone mm-hmm. wants more, I have like lists and lists of people that I would love yes. to um, connect you to. So please feel free to reach out to me too. Yeah. And you have a lot of great content on your Instagram too. So I'll have you say that at the end, but just in case someone is on their phone right now, can you share what that is? Yes. My Instagram is just at stir the pot kitchen. 
Yay. Okay. Well, thank you for letting me go down that extreme rabbit hole. Um, it's, it's something I really love about your business. So I just wanted to give people a little sneak peek of that. Um, in terms of your products and services, what is the best seller or what is what people most often come to you for? Well, currently I have mostly uh, weekend drop-in classes, which I'm really loving because it doesn't require... Um, I have some other courses that are like three-week or seven-week commitments, which I, I really, really love because kids can meet in the same small group at the same time each week and cook together from their separate kitchens, you know, oh, through sweet. seven weeks of recipes and lessons. And that's really great. Um, particularly when I'm like, Oh, I have a student in British Columbia and one in Brooklyn and one in California. And like, they're all sort of chatting together and cooking and tasting the same things in their different kitchens. I, I do love that. But you know, kids are super busy. Family schedules are packed, especially these days, it feels like. So I'm, I've been having these Sunday drop in cook along classes where we'll cook through one to three recipes in about an hour to an hour and a half. Um, anyone can join. I have no limitations on the sizes or the ages of those classes. So um, it's, a, it's a really fun mix of a group usually. And um, yeah, we do all sorts of different things. So last weekend, we cooked um, Korean vegetable pancakes, Jin, and we talked about savory pancakes and we practiced knife skills and then um, frying the vegetable pancakes at the stove, which was a big deal. So learning how to flip them and stuff. Um, and <laughs> then, you know, recently we've done little mini, um, fruit turnovers using puff pastry dough. We were doing tofu banh mi in the next couple weeks. Oh. Um, I also just added an Italian appetizer class to my website, which I'm super excited about. So I, it, those are fun because it just gets like, it helps me. Um, connect with people who might not be able to commit to a full, you know, three or seven week course. Yeah. Amazing. We will make sure we are linking to where people can find more about that. Um, okay. Yeah. So you're a few years into your business now, a couple of years, and um, I'm sure that you've learned a ton. That's like the common thread of being a small business owner is that it's constant learning and lessons and, oh, I wouldn't do that again. So I'd love to hear what one piece of advice would you share with other small business owners? Okay. I think my biggest piece of advice is to find community. So a lot of us go into this type of work, you know, solo business owning or entrepreneurship because we want to work independently and because we want to set our own schedules and kind of be more of like a free agent. Um, that's definitely partly why I left my office job in the pandemic and decided to start my own thing. It can get lonely and it can especially get lonely when you hit the normal snags of running your own business, like, you know, something that doesn't sell so great or when you make a silly mistake or, you know, when you're just feeling like, oh, I'm trying and trying and it's not paying off. Like there's, there's all these normal sort of ebbs and flows of um, running your own business that I think before I found a solid community, I was just kind of taking each uh, stumbling block as like a personal failure and really trying to white knuckle through it alone. So finding community with other small business owners, especially like, you know, like-minded people has been a huge game changer for me. Um, just people who get it, even when they're totally different fields, like, you know, people who do more crafty stuff or who are artists or 
um, you know, totally unrelated fields to kids cooking lessons, they still understand a lot of the same struggles that I go through. So good. What is a mistake that you've made that you've learned from? I think I've made lots of mistakes. I've made tons of mistakes and I I'm trying to just sort of, um, ride them out now. And, and I have a lot more acceptance and compassion for myself as somebody who, you know, is very anxious about doing it right. <laughs> but part part of the learning curve has been like, oh, mistakes are normal and you make them and then you grow. Um, but I think my my big mistake when I first started out was really trying to come across as like too polished. I would use the word we in my marketing all the time because I thought like, oh, okay, we here at Stir the Pot sounds much more professional. And like, you know, I did sort of work with a friend who helped me like brainstorm curriculum and stuff. Like (laughs) I was really focused on like, I have to come across as sort of almost like corporate speak um, and come across as a, you know, a professional business and not just like a person because no one would take me seriously if it's just me in my kitchen. And I think that caused so much anxiety for me and also is just not actually the vibe of my business at all. Like my classes are very casual, cozy. Like I love to encourage kids to um, not be freaked out by the mistakes in their kitchen and to know that they can, you know, make a mess, make mistakes and everything will still be fine. And finally, like my fourth or fifth lesson saying that to the kids, I was like, Oh, I think I need that lesson too for myself. Like, you know, I, I need to be a bit more human and show up a little bit more like, well, this is just me. Um, yeah. so that was, yeah, that was a mistake that I'm, I'm sort of continually learning from. Yeah. That's a hard one, but have you noticed it make a difference like in your ability to sell and connect with people and communicate when you're just more like you and not kind of trying to present like this polished, I think is a good word version of it. Definitely. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm working with kids. So people want to know like who I am as a person (laughs) and, you know, I'm, I'm already removed from, um, people's kitchens by a screen. So I really, the more I show up as myself and let people into my home and my life a little bit, um, and also just show up a bit more fully. Like I was worried in the beginning of being too outspoken about the uh, health messaging stuff or being too outspoken politically. Like the more I show up fully as myself with all of my personal viewpoints and beliefs and ideals, I think the more people can, can trust me and can also decide if I'm somebody they really want to work with. And then I know, you know, if you, (laughs) if what you see is what you get and people sign up, then I feel really much better about being myself in my classes too. So I don't have this weird sort of polished version of myself I've put out there and like, you know, cross my fingers that people will buy. <laughs> like it's just, it's just me. And yeah, it makes it much easier to make human connections. Yeah. I love that so much. The same thing happened for me in my membership in the beginning. I think the first few presentations, like strategy sessions or calls, like I would get like dressed up and like do my hair and like, and then I was just like, this is too much pressure. Like I will not be able to sustain showing up for these multiple times a week. If it's like, I need to be in a certain way. And I feel like I'm the more myself I am. And like, as unpolished as I often am, 
the better, I don't know. It's like that gives permission to other people too, to also be themselves. Like if I was like in a studio with like a blowout every single time, I feel like that would almost create self-consciousness for other people who like aren't who I'm talking to, who like, that's not the case. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking about that, Lauren, too, when you were, yeah, I, I totally think that like showing up just as yourself and you know, allowing yourself to make mistakes or just like, you know, yeah, not, not be totally polished and over the top, like that really lets your actual work shine <laughs> where I'm like, mm-hmm. I still, I get so much out of making good happen. And it's not because you like are in a polished studio with no signs no. of life behind you or have like a perfect blowout. It's because you have this valuable stuff that you can offer. So that, yeah, that, that totally resonates with me. Yeah. Hopefully that resonates with people listening too. If you're like, Oh, I can't like show my face on anything because of whatever. No, like you actually, if you're comfortable, you can, and you can actually not be comfortable is the other thing. Like it's okay to put yourself out of your comfort zone a little bit. So totally, totally. And it helps me to be like, Oh, when someone that I'm like looking to for, you know, a service or for advice or for whatever, if, if they you know made a mistake or told me they were nervous or showed up like not super polished, would I be less likely to trust them or more judgmental? Like, absolutely not. So it's, it's like, a you know, we often will put standards on ourselves that we wouldn't dream of putting on other people. And it's good to remember. Yeah. And like you said, you're just trying to be more compassionate with yourself. I think anyone listening yeah. could, we could probably all stand to just be a little nicer to ourselves. How do you, yes. I think we've talked about this a bit, but how do you approach doing good through your small business? Yeah. So I... I hope, you know, my my big hope is that the content of my classes are a small antidote to a world that is really full of food rules and food anxiety and you know what people call diet culture. Like that's that's one role I see for myself when it comes to my business is like hopefully I can be like a small pebble on the scale the other side of the food world where I can um, sort of help people let go of rules around food and help people embrace all types of foods, all types of bodies. I can destigmatize some things like that would be that would mean a lot to me if if that is what actually comes out of my classes. Um, I also try to put my money where my mouth is. So at the very beginning, I decided I was going to donate a proceed of all of my class fees to um, organizations that are working for a better food system. So I have a long list of great organizations that are fighting for, you know, a more equitable food system. Um, and I, I give 10% of my profits to them. Um, and I also, you know, I, it's important to me that my cooking classes are for everyone. So my classes are always sliding scale down to zero. Um, they're choose your price. So it's sort of, uh, no questions asked. Whoever wants to join can join. Um, for however much they want to give. Hmm. Amazing. Okay. Before you, I let you share a little bit about where people can find you and connect with you. You are a relatively new-ish member to Making Good Happen. I think you're a few months in. I would love yeah. for you to share why you joined. I think one of your current um, members was in another like women's marketing class that I was in. 
um, and kept posting about MGH and how valuable it was. And finally, I was like, I'm just going to poke around and look into it because it seems like extremely helpful. And I think the thing that sold me, obviously, there's there's so much like I still feel as a relatively new (laughs) member, like, oh, my gosh, I could have like hours and hours and hours of just sort of exploring on my own, like past strategy sessions and podcasts and stuff. Um, and, and getting great help from that. But I really like the combination of community, like a very supportive community. I feel like everyone in this group is such a cheerleader for everyone else. And that's just like, like I said at the beginning, like trying to white knuckle it alone is really not for me. <laughs> so I, I love that there's such a supportive community. And I think you work really hard to make that happen. So it's that combined with a super practical approach because I think other groups really shine in either practical marketing advice or community, you know, but I think it's it's the combination that is really helpful. There's both the sort of like informal support group and cheerleader people <laughs> in your corner who are rooting for you and get it. Like there's the emotional part. And then there's also the like, and I I don't want to make sales and pay my bills and like grow my business sustainably and like focus on the right stuff. So there's so many, I feel like every strategy session I'm in, I'm like frantically scribbling down like multiple gold nugget stuff (laughs) um, about, you know, stuff I didn't even really think of before or hadn't given myself permission to think about. So yeah, it's the, it's a combo of community and practical advice that I think really, really helps. Yay. I'm, I mean, so I talk to a certain type of small business owner in my like marketing and who I'm trying to attract. And that's someone who's like big hearted and, you know, wants to make an impact through their business, not just make money. Like, of course, yes, we want to make money, but more than that. Um, I think the people that come into the program tend to be like super generous with their like time and like you said, like just total cheerleaders. I think that's, I guess, what I would say I would specifically recommend making good happen for is people who are kind of fall into that universe of people. Who would you recommend making good happen to? If there is like one type of person or type of business owner, what would you say? I mean, it's hard for me to imagine someone not getting something out of this group, no matter what type of business owner they are. So it's a tough question, but I do think... I think it's a real haven for people who have found other like marketing groups or, you know, business associations or classes too sort of icky or like slick or focused so much on um, business growth that they ignore like the actual human part or the fact that your clients and customers are humans too. (laughs) Like, I think if you feel out of place in some of the traditional like marketing advice uh, (laughs) groups, then this is something to look into. Because for me, I feel like I sort of... When I started my business, I was looking for advice and really looking for how-tos. And I found a lot that just did not resonate with me um, on a basic level, like, ah, I don't really want to feel like I'm tricking people into buying from me. I don't really want to feel like 
I need to grow and expand at a breakneck speed, no matter the personal toll. Like so much just felt like a, mm-hmm. like a bad fitting pair of pants. <laughs> and I'm like, like coming into MGH, I'm like, Oh, there's room. Like these yeah. are my, these are my favorite, like stretchy pants. You know, it's just like, Oh, there's a place where I can relax and it makes sense to me. And I can also like grow and expand with this advice. I think that's like the best compliment anyone has ever given me. Think it happen. Comparing them to like these <laughs> big pair of pants. <laughs> um, yeah, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, I think I am there too. Like I came from corporate America, learning marketing there, and then went straight into small business, where I was like consuming tons of like how to market your small business content, and so much of it was just like. Let's see how we can trick people into buying from us or like put enough pressure on or pour enough salt in the wound that they feel like the only option is to buy from us. And I just like refuse to believe that's the only way to do it. So I'm glad that like you have found that to be true in the content and like that really makes my day. Okay. Pat, you are amazing. I want everyone to go connect with you. So tell people where they can find your website. I know you have an email list. And social media handles, anywhere people can find you online, where where would you send them? Yeah, pretty easy to remember. I have um, Instagram and Facebook are both Stir the Pot Kitchen. And then my website is stirthepotkitchen.com. Um, yes, my email list is something that I am growing under your guidance. And I'm actually going to draft my next email after this call. Um, so you can you can get on there through my website or through uh, messaging me on Instagram. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for everything you do. Thank you for this conversation. I am so glad to have you inside of making good happen. And yeah, I can't wait for folks to hear this. I think they're going to get a lot from this. Thank you so, so much. Honestly, I am so obsessed with Kat's business model and everything she stands for. Go check her and her business out at the link in the show notes at makinggoodpodcast.com slash 189. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful for your support. Here are three ways that you can give back to making good. First, I'd be honored if you'd leave a rating and review in your favorite podcast player. And don't forget to subscribe and follow. Second, if you have a friend that you think would enjoy the podcast, send them the link. Today's episode was at makinggoodpodcast.com slash 189. And finally, if you haven't already, take a screenshot of your podcast player while you're listening to the episode and tag me on social media at Lauren Tilden. I would love to cheer you on. This episode was produced and edited by Corinne Monaco of Just Peachy Illustration. Thank you for being here and for focusing on making a difference with your small business. Talk to you next time.